Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But there's nothing that you could do Things change, baby Such as my feelings for you And you just look foolish when you put me Nothing's gonna change the way you feel about me now Now when you lay down to sleep That's when it'll hurt the most When you wake up alone And you still smell my smoke So drink up, baby, try and live me down Cause nothing's gonna change the way you feel about me now I know it's wrong, but I've got to Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Uprise Radio. Um, thank you for listening again. Uh, Jackson, how are you? I'm good, James. The beautiful sounds there of Justin Townsville, tragically taken too soon last week at age 38. And we'll end the show with Mike Noga for the same tragic reasons. But I'm good, James. Well, it's great to have you back. And there has been a lot of uh, things going on in the US. Over the past week, we've seen both the Democratic and Republican conventions begin. We're going to be having a discussion in a couple of weeks with a couple of guests that we had on a little while ago talking about the Democratic primaries. Uh, We're going to be chatting with Daniel and Melissa again to talk about uh, the state of the US election. But I thought we would just hear a few words from Donald Trump Jr., in his addresses, one of the many, many, many Trumps that were speaking as part of the convention. Good evening, America. I'm Donald Trump Jr. We're here tonight to talk about the great American story, to talk about this country we all love, this land of promise and opportunity, of heroes and greatness. Just a few short months ago, we were seeing the American dream become a reality for more of our citizens than ever before. The greatest prolonged economic expansion in American history. The lowest unemployment rate in nearly 50 years. The lowest unemployment rates ever for black Americans, Hispanic Americans, women, and pretty much every other demographic group. And then, courtesy of the Chinese Communist Party, the virus struck. The president quickly took action and shut down travel from China. Joe Biden and his Democrat allies called my father a racist and a xenophobe for doing it. They put political correctness ahead of the safety and security of the American people. Fortunately, 
As the virus began to spread, the president acted quickly and ensured ventilators got to hospitals that needed them most. He delivered PP&E to our brave frontline workers, and he rallied the mighty American private sector to tackle this new challenge. Uh, we could listen to that for you know much longer, and it is very entertaining, I must say. But the <laughs> mighty private sector. I, I thought that um, you know uh, what's his name, Michael Mann, or you know some uh, film director was just going to burst onto the stage, dragging with him Elon Musk. You know, it's also really important. I mean, we're a radio show, but the setting, like it's just this gauche mm. neoclassical, these huge columns, the hundreds of American flags, the whole staging of it is so bizarro world all the trumps rolling out you know like some kind of mutated dynasty i just um there's been a lot of you know trump himself you know talking about how joe biden is some socialist just the the distortion of the truth is um i mean it still surprises me after all this time i I think yeah it's in always fascinating i think delving into american politics and uh, having watched a few clips of both conventions, I, I just, I, I'm, yeah, like you say, I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise, but I, I'm just struck by how ruthless they are in talking about the opposition. Uh, you know, in most kind of particularly democratic sort of, you know, states, the opposition, although they might be very far apart or not, you know, on policies and issues and things like that, they don't just denigrate the other person so much. But, you know, this, they... They just, they, like you say, they lie about all these things. You know, they say, in Donald Trump goes in to say, if you elect Joe Biden, every person, their home is under threat. Your city is under threat. It is just such a motive kind of language. And it's, mm. yeah. Uh, we saw it the first time, didn't we? With like crooked Hillary and lock her up. And this, you know, this presentation mm. of the opponents is not political opponents, but yeah, like uh, genuine violent threats to people's security that need, that need to be dealt with, you know? And I, I think mm. you know, we've had conversations before on our show about the fascist tendencies. And I think this like this willingness to present political opponents as dangerous and needing to be dealt with comes out constantly from the Trump camp, I, I guess, worryingly because it works because it galvanizes his base and gives them a political license to attack the forces that they that they you know crazily feel have been growing in strength you know in, in America. Well, some of the other key speakers at the Republican convention were uh, that teenage boy who uh, had the "Make America Great Again" hat on, who was uh, insulting oh, um, Native Americans at um, the, I think it was a pipeline protest or or something around that kind of issue. Uh, they had they had the two that older couple who were defending their mansion from Black Lives Matter protesters with those guns. They were keynote speakers as well. You know, it's really who's who of Fox News's up late guests. It it does highlight though that they're not really they're not key political people. They're not activists from either kind of side. They're not key members of the Republican Party. You know, so that does it shows a real weakness in actually having an established real people to defend and support Trump's re-election. Yeah, one hopes that the catastrophe of COVID in that country has um, shook loose, you know, those last limpets in the Republican Party that were holding on to Trump as a viable leader of the country, you know, like it has, it is just Mm. so ironic that 
his son is lauding his uh, handling of this health crisis. It's been an unmitigated disaster. And there is, you know, mm. there is still incredible things happening in the States. I mean, we, you know, I've been really encouraged by, you know, the actions of NBA players recently in boycotting games in support of Black Lives Matter with another tragic death at the hands of police of a young black man. And, yeah, so I'd love to see that here around uh, Sir Doug Nichols' rounds with the AFL. It is going to be fascinating to see what happens in November. I, I can't pick mm. it. I mean, I think Biden is the weakest Democratic candidate in maybe ever. Yeah, I think it will certainly be interesting to watch. Uh, but, I mean, it's really hard to know because the polling has uh, Biden well ahead. But we've seen kind of really the, you know, lost trust in what the polling is actually able to pick. And it's difficult to trust them in the same way that they were done before. But there's, there's a lot of, um, I think, issues at the moment as well about the election that, you know, Trump is sabotaging the post office. So, you know, people are potentially not going to actually get their forms to vote. Just the amount of restrictions that already exist in the US around um, voting rights that mean with another huge um, imposition on that, you just wonder how much that will affect people actually going out to vote. Totally. It's also, I mean, there's so many crazy things about that system, the way they hold the election often on a weekday, so the people who, who don't have the luxury of getting out of work to go and vote mm. can't do it. You know, like most democracies in the world have their elections on a weekend, you know, so to, to encourage access. There's so many uh, things about the U.S. electoral system that seem to be discouraging voters, especially voters who may be from marginalised communities, may have difficulty moving around cities, all of those things, you know. And to stop postal votes, I mean, you know, that's exactly the type of person you're wiping out from voting. Someone who might live a long way from a polling station, can't take time off work, might have mobility issues, might have caring responsibilities to prevent them from getting out of the house. You know, these are... Uh, politicians love to talk about, you know, forgotten Australians and forgotten Americans. But, you know, these people have been deliberately put to the back of minds by the political machinery of the United States. This is not some, you know, quirk of their system. It's just quite deliberate, you know, like denying, you know, uh, people currently in prison the right to vote even though, you know, government policy affects them so directly. Currently in prison, but also often, depending on the state, if you have a criminal record, you're often not able to vote either. Mm. But Trump is trying to delegitimise the, the election itself. Some of those people that live further out of the cities and things like that, it could be very well that they are actually Trump supporters. You know, I think that um, the Democrats, Biden, um, and particularly Harris, have a lot more support in uh, bigger city kind of cosmopolitan kind of areas, things like that. So, yeah, I think it's it's not necessarily about directly targeting Democrats. It's about targeting the whole legitimacy of the uh, election itself and postal voting, which he's already flagged a few times. And I think, you know, that fits in very well with the kind of his populist sort of ideology. Yeah, well, I look forward to talking to Daniel and Melissa again about all this in a few weeks' time. Uh, today we're talking about something completely different. Uh, we are talking about the arts industry here in Australia, which has obviously been suffering uh, pretty intensely with nobody going to gigs or galleries or um, theatres or performances. Uh, so we're going to get a couple of performing artists in uh, to chat. Uh, so stay tuned to 3CR. Hi, I'm... No, I didn't do testing. Oh, okay. Testing, testing. <laughs> okay. Hi, I'm Susanna Espy. And I'm Ida. And you're listening to 3CR. <laughs> ah!
The reality of COVID-19 for the performing arts scene has broadly been a dire one. Industry bodies from Live Performance Australia through to the Australia Council have begged the government to intervene with a package that goes directly to artists and the vulnerable institutions that house and nurture them, places like La Mama, VoiceWorks, Meandrin and others. But these requests have fallen on stone deaf ears. There has been no rescue package for arts or artists with the JobKeeper scheme seemingly designed to omit the common work practices of this truly gig economy. Since the onset of COVID, fully a third of Australia's arts institutions have been stripped of their already limited funding. On television, the Ministry of Arts has actually wound back the local content requirements, supposedly to protect media companies. The writer and arts critic Alison Crogan put it succinctly in an article she wrote for Witness magazine in April. Australians might want culture, she wrote. Every survey shows that they do, but the government doesn't want us to make it. The federal government has an ideological agenda to destroy anything in Australian culture that is worth a hill of beans. What it does propose to fund, a huge war museum that no one wants, or a stunt on circumnavigating Australia to commemorate a voyage that literally never happened, has nothing to do with culture. Instead of culture, we'll have an endless parade of vacuous nationalistic propaganda. So on Uprise Radio, it is to combat this type of fear that a vibrant critical artistic scene will be replaced with vacuous propaganda that we've invited our two guests today. Sarah Ward is an actor, singer, writer, and all-round iconoclast, and Mitch Jones is a director, performer, writer, and circus maverick, and we welcome you both to the show. Thank you. So first of all, Sarah, how would you describe your mood and the mood of your artistic community, your friends and colleagues that you make work with during these times? Um, it's, there's, there's more than two things going on at once, but at least two things going at once, on, at, once at any time for me. So I, I feel brave and I feel scared. I feel inspired and I feel like digging a hole and never coming out of it. I feel gratitude and I feel jealous. <laughs> I feel um, worried and I feel hopeful. Um, I feel so many things. Um, and I think it is a time for, oh, I also feel lots of things and feel nothing. So I think that's a bit of a problem for me too, is the numb, the numbness, but I think it's all really normal and sometimes I reach out on social media or I call somebody and I ask them if they're feeling the same um, and they often are. I think in this time um, I, I, it's, I, I'm not on JobKeeper or JobSeeker and I don't think I would have been able to get it. So it's lucky for me that I spent quite a bit of time just before this engaging in community organisations and nurturing those relationships. And I teach locally at the Footscray City Primary School. <laughs> and that's all via Zoom at the moment. Um, and I teach Odie, Mitch. <laughs> Some, yeah, teach, teach Mitch's daughter too, who's an absolute legend. She loves I've made a she friend. Loves those classes. I'm making a friend. <laughs> and the interesting thing about this teaching and this community engagement is how cyclical it is. So it's like who's teaching who, who's giving to who. Um, but at the end of the day, they're learning, I'm earning an income and, and we're all connecting in. So that's kind of been COVID for me is um, being, I've been very busy in those areas and then therefore quite tired. 
but happy. Yeah, it is. It is. It's, so you've kind of had to diversify and hook in to local people, you know, and local community, you know, because you, you have had shows touring the world and shows that have toured Australia to big audiences. And, you know, this is what I suppose has, that's what's fallen out. You know, the, the arse end has fallen out of the industry in that sense because I imagine you had things that were coming up that have been cancelled. I, I, I want to, and you're nodding your head to, to, to our viewers, our, our listeners out there who cannot see anything. But Mitch, I wonder whether you could reflect on like why you think the federal government and, and it's, it's got like a cheerleading support from groups like the IPA is so intent to undermine the value of public arts, you know, from defunding humanities to neutering the Australia Council, like, do you think it's deliberate or do you think it's just an accidental occurrence? I think it's entirely deliberate because it's an attack on critical thought. They want to narrow the boundaries of what sort of dialogue is happening in our society. And I think that one of the things that art does incredibly well is it broadens people's ability to empathize with ideas and situations that they might not have personal experience of. And the outcome of that is a society that's more compassionate and more considerate of different perspectives on important events. And I think that conservatism as represented by the federal government's attitude relies pretty much on people not doing that and not having a broader and more empathetic perspective. And I think it's also um, very intertwined with the neoliberal politics of capitalism, because I think there's a, there's a crucial point here, which I've only seen a few people touch on, but the reason that the government is not supporting the arts with a recovery package in the way it's supporting other industries is I think specifically because they know that our our sector is resilient enough that activity will resume without that support being there because we're self-motivated by reasons that aren't just financial. So there is a, a big process going on with individuals and collectives who continue to make work who, or who want to continue to make work or who like myself are advocating for work to be made that is separated from commerce and separated from economics but it's a double-edged sword because of course the more present we are in the recovery of our own industry the more we're fulfilling this kind of prophecy that they've made, which is that they can do absolutely nothing to support us and we'll still get back up and keep going. So, you know, it's a really bittersweet kind of situation that we're in where in a way, the fact that we've been completely abandoned, it's like we've been left to our own devices. And I think at this point in time, it's a really crucial moment for the Australian cultural industries because the direction that we decide to go in next could determine a lot of what happens in the next sort of cycle of work making and creative dreaming. Um, and I think it's important that we choose with the right priorities in mind. Mitch, I wonder, and um, for Sarah as well, that talking about, you mentioned neoliberalism and, and obviously that, you know, is the individualized kind of institution of our whole society and, you know, work and every aspect away from the kind of, more community-led aspects we've had in the past. But as a, as a performer and, you know, as an artist, I, I feel like, you know, working in the art sector myself as well, that we have to become, you know, our own, you know, individualised worker. We have to, you know, be we're pitted against each other. Um, 
you know, we have to find work across multiple things. We can't, you know, the, Andrew's government is talking about insecure work at the moment. Well, the art sector is all insecure work. You know, how do we kind of build a community that, I mean, even that word community, we, whether you're, you know, uh, an actor or musician or whatever, you're always told about your community. But, you know, a lot of the time it's not, it's not the same as a workplace. You know, it might be a great community, but it, it's let down at times, not just by the government, but by each other, I think. You know, how do we build that solidarity back to be able to have a thriving place that we can not just create great performance and great art, but, you know, make sure that we can all survive and, and thrive in that kind of culture. Do you want to answer that, Mitch? Oh, I'd love to hear what you have to say about that, actually. Okay. Um, I'm kind of going, I think there's a lot of communities thinking this way, but at the moment I'm thinking local, 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 local. It's all about local for me. So it's about going, okay, I'm going to stop thinking because I've been forced to anyway about international tours and international plans. And I'm going to look a lot at um, where I can be locally funded and locally supported. So whether that be shops that no longer have tenants in them that I can move into possibly to perform something or whether that be local council. Um, and local council in the, like the city of Maribyrnong at the moment are actually triannually funding small arts organisations at the moment. Um, so there's a lot of support coming from places that are unexpected I think that we can also work together on outdoor experiences at the moment and we have to be a lot more resourceful than we ever were. Artists are amazing. Scientists are amazing. And as I was talking to Jackson actually before, over the weekend about this, partly why the government stops funding for these um, areas is because we can imagine futures for ourselves and we can make things up. We're, we're incredible. Um, I always joke about the fact that how many plague films and series were there before the plague hit? So many. It's like we knew. <laughs> and the scientists certainly knew. Um, there's a collective consciousness and we are tuned into each other and we are a global community creatively as well. But I think that we need to start thinking locally and innovatively and taking care of each other's mental health because you're right James um there's a lot of talk in the on you know in the media at the moment about how insecure work creates anxiety and depression and um most of my friends have that <laughs> you know we're living with those conditions we're on the meds or we're seeing our therapists and we're taking care of ourselves and each other because we're aware that that's a part of what we have to live with is that insecurity. At the moment, my calendar is literally a sieve. Me and my partner joke about it. Um, so people call and say, can you put a date in for October? And I go, sure. <laughs> and then I watch it fall through, um, which at the moment is just, you just have to be, um, as zen as you can, but I, go, I guess we're, look, we're used to being resourceful, we're used to being innovative and we just have to think more. I think local, outdoor, um, community connection and at the moment I'm really interested in, in art that's meaningful and by meaningful I mean authentic. 
So um, I, I'm just not at all interested in, in putting on fishnet stockings and singing another opening, another shout. I'm just like, we can't go back to that. I can't go back to that. Let's try and create art that has meaningful connection. Um, that might be meaningful for some people, but it's not for me. Thank you. It's, it's really interesting that both of you just touched on there how um, – resourceful and creative, intuitive, self-propelled that artists say. I was talking over the weekend as well to an Indigenous poet, uh, Alan Van Nerven, and they were saying they're so sick of people using the, the word resilient for Indigenous communities because what it means is that they're going to recover. It doesn't look at any of the things that they have to recover from. You know, it just says that you're resilient, you'll be fine, you'll bounce back. And I think that, that that's exactly what you're describing about the arts too, this assumption, well, the knowledge that artists are incredible, they are resourceful, they are creative. So they'll be right. They'll sort themselves out. But being creative, being intuitive, you know, does leave you open to, to empathy and emotion and care and hurt. And what you were just talking about, Sarah, with the amount of, you know, friends who struggle with the, the empathy that comes from being a creative person. So I, I just thought it was a really good point by by this poet and, and you've both just echoed it as well. I had this image, Mitch, when you were talking about um, how artists are left to their own and I was thinking about weeds and how amazing it is. Is it because of my hair? No, no, I was just thinking about concrete and how humans covered everything with concrete and, and that Melbourne used to be a wetlands mm. and that we filled it in with concrete and how, how overwhelmingly like it makes me want to vomit when I think about that but I think about how trees still grow and weeds still grow in concrete mm. how angry we are at weeds and how angry we are at any bird that survives the city get away pigeon get away spirit we're so angry at, at things that survive even though we place all this concrete down and I think that's how artists feel at the moment <laughs> we feel like we're pigeons without claws living in flinders street station hopping mm. around looking for chips <laughs> everyone curses the birds and then they jump in their four-wheel drives and drive two hours to listen to the bird song somewhere miles away when they've built it all over it's quite ironic really isn't it you're listening to a 3cr podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3cr in melbourne australia for more information, go to www.3cr.org.au. Yeah, I was going to quote that line back to you, Sarah, that you're not doing. You said to me over the weekend, uh, when I think about a project, if it doesn't say community connection and authenticity, then I say no to that project. I thought that was an amazing way, like a great mantra to live by. And I wonder if you could reflect on Sarah first and then Mitch, you know, we're all sitting here just knowing that the arts is such a critical part of a healthy society and healthy relationships. But Sarah, what does good art create in our communities? And at the risk of sounding really dramatic, what does it create in your soul? Um, in myself, I'll answer that first. Um, good art always makes me feel, it's just that word again, connected. It makes me feel like I'm not alone. It makes me feel like, I'm not crazy for having lots of feelings or big feelings. It makes me feel grateful. It helps me understand my privilege. It helps me understand other people's perspectives, cultures like Mitch was talking about. It, it exercises compassion. 
Um, and it engages my imagination and it makes me often feel like when I was a child and I could escape, but I'm not always interested in escaping. Um, sometimes I like to um, be completely confronted. Um, I remember my Beck, Beck, my partner, um, she was in a really, um, she was in a, she was in a cabaret. I'm not going to give it a name. She was in a cabaret in Edinburgh and because she was surrounded by cabaret culture, she was surrounded by, um, you know, jazz hands and sequins. She spent the whole of her Edinburgh Fringe experience look, watching really subversive and political theatre. And she came back and just said, Sarah, it's amazing what people are creating. I learned so much about other people's cultures and about some of the dark, dark things that I never wanted to think about. Um, so she was educated, you know. We've got to remember it's, it's, it's educational as well. And the beautiful thing about art is um, that it's, it's so uh, subjective. You, you, your reaction to that art is never wrong. It's your reaction. I love that about art. Take it away, Mitch. Uh, I was la- I was I was laughing at the question because I don't think souls exist, and <laughs> <laughs> I got so I got sidetracked by thinking about that. Um, what do I think good art does? I think for me, like the reason I make art is because of the in incredibly empowering lure of creativity being the ability to bring something into the world that didn't exist prior to the intervention of the artist. And I think that's for my practice. My, my aim is to bring my imaginary images to life because circus and physical theater and performance art are like living surrealism. Um, you can describe something with words, you can draw it or paint it happening. You can write a song about it, but only with performance can you actually put it happening in front of an audience. And for me, it feels like it's the closest thing you can get to dreaming while you're awake is, mm-hmm. is watching a really profound work of physical theater. Um, I, th- I think to, to touch on something that Sarah said earlier about localism I think that embeddedness is a huge part of what a creative community requires to achieve those aims because you need to take the audience with you on that journey and the audience have to want to come with you in order to do that. And they're supporting you to do it. Um, I think that's why you tend to get a lot of artists who are mostly only friends with other artists because in a way you've, you've already done the necessary groundwork to pull them into your imaginary world because they're kind of already there with you. Uh, But I think something that I've always been interested in is stepping outside of that as well as stepping outside of artistic communities and taking artistic experiences to people who aren't part of an immediate artistic community um, and, and trying to show them how impossibly amazing the world can be when you just shift your perspective three steps sideways and, and look at something from a, from a different angle. Uh, yeah. And, and I think I just, I mean, I think that experience is valuable in and of itself. Like the world is an enormous place. Our brains process billions of sensations. Why wouldn't you want to experience as much as you possibly can? I wonder, you know, I guess there's this, um, I think from, you know, both of you talking about kind of pushing the boundaries of what 
you know, we don't necessarily, and, you know, all respect people that do, but we don't necessarily need to see a hundred different interpretations of Shakespeare, you know, every single year uh, on end. And we don't need to just see, you know, the, just looking at theatre, you know, per se, and like the MTC, you know, they bring out a lot of great shows. They also bring out a lot of rubbish as well. And, you know, a lot of it doesn't speak to the majority of people and, you know, hardly anyone can afford to go there anyway. But so on the one hand, we've got all these institutions that that's where all the funding goes to, you know, these kind of set institutions. So unless we radicalise, you know, their shift, a shift within those institutions, are we kind of destined then to be pushing these things as individual artists? Because, you know, we talked before about this kind of thing where we're all kind of forced to be individual kind of businesses as an artist not being able to reform, revolutionise those institutions, are we kind of destined, if we do want to push out of this into, you know, the kind of things that you're both talking about, you know, are we then stuck in that kind of individualised place as an artist? This is where it gets really, really, um, like, bad for your mental health, is that idea that you have to become a product and that you have to sell yourself and that you have to have as many followers on Instagram as possible. But where it gets really dark is when you actually get a job in a flagship venue and they say to you, how many followers do you have? And it's like, but hang on a second, don't you have a marketing team? Isn't that your job? I, I'm just, my, my mind just goes like, bam, like, wow. So not only do I have to do the work when I'm self-producing, I have to do the work when you're producing? Okay, I'm tired now. I'm going to sleep. The institutions are poisoned by their very nature of being institutions within the cultural hierarchy. Like you can't take money from your ideological nemesis and then expect to be able to use it free of consequence. (laughs) Um, And and I think for, for me, and I don't want to speak for anyone else, but this pandemic and the lockdown has been an opportunity to rethink the disruptive potential of my art and to become re-energized by the fact that that is actually like its purpose, its social purpose is to be disruptive and to take a clear eyed view at how compromised uh, I have let that become just in the last couple of years, because I've been trying to achieve different things with my practice. And I've been like, you know, flirting with the system, put it like that. And when, when the disruptive potential starts to become compromised the sort of purpose becomes lost and that for me is when i experience what you're talking about james of the individualized actor the the business the the trader who is constantly working on their social media followers and all that kind of crap that goes along with that um and and i think uh a a friend of mine who lives overseas uh, a, a russian actually was saying you know this is the time to think about detaching your practice from capitalism because it you know anything that's anything that is is so compromised doesn't have any of our best interests at heart so to to think about having a practice that relies on that capitalist system it's always going to be liable to economic collapse it's always going to be liable to the priorities of the funding bodies to the programmers uh you know so i think i think to go outside of that is uh, a huge adventure it's it's like a huge challenge for us now it's also incredibly frightening because you have to detach yourself from your ego 
And I think that's the hardest thing, hardest journey for me is ever since I was young, I had this idea that, you know, what it meant to be successful was to be uh, a household name, was to be on TV, was to be touring constantly, you know, and to just go, okay, um, I'm, a, I'm a teacher, I'm a facilitator, um, I run workshops and I perform. And for me, that would have been five years ago a massive compromise because my ambition was to be a full-time performer. But my concern is that if I'm a performer plus I'm a teacher and, and, I, and I work in community, I'm tired. I mean, I'm really tired. Um, I've had quite a bit of illness in my life. I'm on the edge of chronically tired, if I was to be honest, and that's just me, but I think there's a lot of artists in this position. I have to compromise the work that pays me regularly in order to perform. Um, So I've got some really big decisions to make about, about that, and I think a lot of artists do, about capitalism, detaching yourself from capitalism in some ways is saying I'm okay to not be paid. Or well, this is something I do for love. That's, and, that's and the real challenge right now, isn't it? Like, it's yeah. also like, why do you have to jettison the possibility of your disruptive, radical art reaching a broad audience? You know, this, this is what's so frustrating about the capitalist system in that to reach a, a large audience under the current model, you have to compromise. You have to go and work for a big broadcaster or a big institution to get access to that audience. You know, that, that there is, you know, it appears to be forces at work uh, stopping independent artists reaching broad audiences without that compromise. But it's also... I, think can, I, I was going to say in terms of like, James, you were saying, what do we do? Sort of like a question. I, I, I think, you know, I was talking about local and stuff like that. I think there are also, you would be surprised at how many people actually want to give money to artists who are people that have a lot of money, that are sitting on a lot of money. And they include artists that have a lot of money. And I've been in contact with some of them to help me with projects in the past, thinking they would say no, and they say yes, and you be, and you're tax deductible. And I, I know that. And in some ways, if you're lined up with someone that has very similar politics to you, that is funding your art, and it's not the government, yippee! You know what I mean? Like you don't have to answer to the government. You don't have to be their toy. Um, you don't have to do an acquittal. <laughs> Um, it, it is a possibility and I also think that idea of collectives, like let's go back to the 90s and let, let's have little collectives, like little music collectives and we take care of each other and, yeah, little cir- the circus does that. Circus already does that. I reckon circus, the circus community can probably, I mean, you're probably jaded about it, Mitch, but I, I sort of watch the circus community on the outside a bit. Sorry, I'm guessing. But um and I think that the circus community, um, they do it well. Yeah. yeah when, it com- when it comes to collective. Would yeah. you agree? Yes, I would definitely agree yeah. with that. Lots of great examples of people like Malia Walsh from Circus Tricties, who just last year organised something uh, that I forget the name of the project, but she got people to donate as much as they could afford to a central fund that was then split into however many parts, I think it was six parts. And then everybody submitted their proposals for a share of that centrally pooled money. And then the projects were chosen at random (laughs) out of a hat. Uh, And I can't remember how many entries there were. Maybe there was a couple of dozen 
but it just removed all of this kind of like idea of some sort of oversight or value executive choosing the thing that they thought was going to be the best and just went, here's us as a community. Here's what we can afford to pull from our resources. Everybody gets $2,000 as a seed fund for their idea. Put in your idea. It gets chosen at random. It, it, absolutely amazing and, and totally anarchist way of funding, self-funding the arts. Um, and I just want to say, because I think Sarah made a really good point, that the, the problem with what I'm saying earlier is that it does leave the arts industry uh, vulnerable to being the preserve of the wealthy. If, if it's only made by people who can afford to make it without being paid, then that has its own massive uh, ideological trap in it, which is that if it's only done by people who can pay themselves to do it, then that's also a paradox that I don't have a, <laughs> don't have an answer for, but yeah. I just, I think that that's a great, um, answer to the question that I was trying to put before is, and I think that it's really important, not, you know, it's the arts community and it's the left as well, that we don't have any spaces anymore that we can, you know, sit in, that we can perform in, that we can organize in, you know, that we can share ideas in. And as, as Mitch said before, that we can dream in, you know, we, we don't have any of those spaces anymore. They've all been taken over. And, you know, I think that while there are some spaces that exist in a kind of like community aspect and, you know, perhaps we need to look more at those or, you know, um, occupying different spaces that we can have um, performance spaces in and building those kind of artistic collectives back. I think that that's a fantastic idea and a great way of kind of bridging those things forward. We are reaching the end of our time. But I think that something that both of you have touched on, you know, in this disruptive moment is that there is an opportunity to rethink how arts is done, how how you do arts individually and how we do it more broadly as a community. And, you know, just briefly, what do you think is most important in the art that you're going to create or hope to create as we, you know, hopefully get out of this crazy situation we're in at the moment? What type of art do you guys want to be making? Exactly what Mitch said disruptive, messy, funny, disturbing, anarchic, transcendent. I just want... Accessibility. I don't don't want any more accessible. Accessible. Thank you, Jackson. Accessibility. So uh, art that people can actually afford to come to and art spaces that people with different bodies can come to and, um, and those who, are, who have illness or chronic illness um, can access and young people. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Let's not, let, let's not think that um, theatre for young people always has to be um, patronising or created quickly or um, gets, should be getting less funding or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, that's my little dream. Mitch? Uh, well, for me, I've been really uh, feeling very creatively stimulated during this lockdown, partly because of the squashed circumstances <laughs> um, that my imagination is, is living in, in this one bedroom apartment. And all I want to do is get outside and start performing again in a, in a way that is free, uh, is surprising, is not programmed, is not documented, uh, is something that people come across in their everyday life and something that disturbs the kind of uh, spectacle 
of capitalism. So I've been reading quite a lot of um, situationist theory, which you and I were talking about last weekend, Jackson, um, about how to create happenings or situations where there's an emergence of a new radical possibility. So I've kind of got a whole bunch of ideas that I want to start testing out, which are just about bringing performance into daily life in a way that people don't expect to see it. So maybe it's like uh, a scene from a play being played out in a public park by a bunch of actors that don't look like actors and people can sit around and watch, or maybe it's two people in clown costumes getting onto public transport and starting to sing karaoke to each other. Uh, Maybe it's somebody hanging a trapeze under a bridge down by the Mary Creek and doing a whole trapeze routine for no one and then packing up the trapeze and leaving again. Like just bringing stuff back into the everyday in local community um, in a way that's separate from professionalism and it's separate from charging money for it. And it just happens because it just is. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I'm interested in doing once, once we can start doing that again. Just quickly, there's a, there's a really great term for that um, that, ch- that I think you'll love called poetic terrorism. Mm. Yeah. I great. do love that. And I do absolutely love that word it, because it's that idea of um, it's almost illegal to be poetic. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. That idea of blowing a hole in the veneer of capitalist realism as well, this grey mat shit that just hangs over all of the public interactions, you know, whereby, you know, bloody organised sport becomes the most colourful thing most people see each week, you know, like which is a sadness in and of itself. You know, but yeah. it's been really good to talk to you both. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to me and James on our radio show. Um, and it's really nice to talk to you both. So thank you. It's been fun. Thanks, Jackson. Love you. Love you, Mitch. Nice to meet you, James. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. I've actually got to catch a flight to the Gold Coast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm going up to the Channel 10 studios to film my new reality show. <laughs> <laughs> Is that The Bachelor in Paradise? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you've heard of it. Great. Yeah. Are you well, following me on social media? I hope you find... Or just in real life? I hope you find <laughs> a vapid, shallow and short-lasting love. Enjoy. Yeah, and uh, Thank you. Talk, talk to you all again soon. We thought we would go out with a little bit of the music of Mike Noga. Now, there is no uh, meaning to this song choice. It's just a ripping song. We're not making any comments about the arts industry at all. I hope you enjoy this music uh, and a very sad loss it is to the Australian music community. Goodbye, James. (laughs) Goodbye. I arrived one day too late with one bag and a head full of hate Met old Paisley there for a drink I made bread and kitchen sink yeah, I could love that first cigarette And a coffee for my head Throw our feelings out on the floor I Killed red wine and killed some more And all Sleep for three whole weeks. I've got a cold and broken teeth, 
and a heart that's grown a home. Yo, St. Paul has got my soul. I'm in the local at that bar. With cold feet from a broken glass and an arm around that friend. Let's take one more drink so this don't end. It don't matter if you're nice Or you're nasty or alone Or you're a guest in someone's home Just take one drink every day And pretty soon you hear them say That you're welcome straight back in Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.